Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today I'm here with a very special friend, Lior Sternfeld. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, such a pleasure to be again on the Ajam Podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, for, our, for our newer listeners, um, Lior and Ajam, uh, we go way back. He was on one of our first episodes of the Emerging Scholarship Podcast, which I think was like three years ago. Maybe, it? yeah. Yeah, so um, he's one of the alumni of the Ajam Podcast, and we're here to um, talk about his, his recent book that was just published with Stanford University Press, Between Iran and Zion, Jewish Histories of 20th Century Iran. I even forgot to add your title because I'm just so familiar <laughs> with you, you are, but uh, you are a professor at uh, Penn State University at, um, in Jewish Studies, yes? History and Jewish Studies. Wonderful. So last time we had you on the podcast, we talked about mostly Jewish refugees in World War II Iran, yes? Yes. We talked about the Polish refugees that came in the, in the early 1940s to Iran. Some of them were Jews, the rest were Polish Catholics, but yeah, it, it was an interesting episode of Iranian history. Yeah, and for those of you who are interested in that, uh, we have a 20-30 minute podcast that we can uh, link to this one. But now we're here to talk about the larger project, the book. Well, first of all, congrats on on publishing. This Thank is you a, so much. It's quite the feat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a special moment <laughs> to have a book born. <laughs> I mean, because you had the adjunct bump before, right? So like... <laughs> I, I give you all credit. <laughs> <laughs> so I also want to talk more specifically about the larger project, right? Because the podcast was about a very particular moment in history and a very particular subject of the book. So maybe today we can talk a little bit about the Iranian Jewish community in general, and then also kind of uh, historical developments and political developments throughout the 20th century uh, onwards till today. All right. What was the, the landscape like for an Iranian Jew in, let's say, at the turn of the 20th century? So the turn of the 20th century was actually uh, when things started to change for the Iranian Jewish community. I mean, we know that there were about, let's say, around 100,000 Jews living in Iran at the turn of the century. We cannot talk about one Jewish experience until the, the turn of the 20th century. Because the Jews in the cities fared relatively well, and Jews in the rural places encountered more difficulties and hardships than others. I think that uh, the book of uh, Daniel Tzaddik uh, on the Jews in the 19th century really shows very well how how different were the experiences of, uh, of Jews in different parts of the country. And with the Constitutional Revolution, this was the first major transformation that encompassed all the Jewish communities in Iran. And, you know, for the first time, like every other Iranian, they got citizenship. They became nominally equal citizens, which gave them the idea or the thought that they will be able to achieve what they strive for for so many centuries to become equal part of the Iranian society. And so, wait, just a question. So beforehand, like, I mean, of course, we know that Iran had many different religious and ethnic minorities. And during the constitutional period, ethnic confession was, was incredibly important. Right. Uh, what did constitutionalism symbolically and also like in reality, what did it actually do for, for Iranian Jews? So for Iranian Jews, first of all, the legal definition of them as citizens was extremely important. It reduced the significance of the ethnic and religious identity. It gave them the legal equality that they wanted to have. But also, it allowed them to aspire to do more in the Iranian political sphere and in the Iranian society. 
it didn't work all that well. I mean, in the first few years, they felt that they can work towards an equal status in Iran. But then they realized that there is a difference between legal status and social status. While they were nominally equal, legally, they still had to face all the discrimination and prejudice that was pretty prominent. And then 1917 came, the Balfour Declaration. And they felt that after about 10 years of being part of the Iranian society after the Constitutional Revolution, and they, for the first time, being represented in the majlis by a Jewish representative, it didn't work the first majlis, it worked in the second majlis, it still didn't deliver the great promise of equal citizenship. And so for, for those of you who um, are not familiar with the Balfour Declaration, I, I guess like, you know, it's a very Middle Eastern studies audience, so I think everybody knows. The Balfour Declaration was the, the promise of Britain to help the Zionist movement uh, build a Jewish home in Palestine. While it's open for many interpretations, <laughs> <laughs> it was the first political achievement of the Zionist movement. And how did this affect the Iranian community? Then? So for the Iranian community, this was the time that they felt like if they couldn't get the benefits of the Constitutional Revolution, maybe it's time to leave. And they established almost really rapidly, almost overnight, they established associations to teach Hebrew, to uh, register all the properties and make lists for mass exodus of Iranian Jews to Israel, to Palestine. And it felt like it's going to be the substitute for the national aspiration of Iranian Jews. But again, this didn't last very long because in 1925, Reza Pahlavi ascended to, uh, to crown and his vision actually reignited the aspiration of Iranian Jews to assimilate again. How so? What was so special about Reza Shah's uh, vision or his actual policies regarding the Jews? It wasn't particularly uh, regarding the Jews, but his uh, clash with the religious establishment, his vision of secular Iran, which meant that they are going to diminish the role of religion in, in the Iranian society. His emphasis on the Persian identity, and Jews had this long-standing claim to be one of the only minorities in Iran that speak no other language than Persian. So it, they felt like this nation-building project of Reza Shah was meant for them, like this is their moment. And so Zionism, at the same speed that it was built in Iran, it was abandoned. Like 1925, 1926, we see Iranian Jews overwhelmingly move back to be invested in inside Iranian projects. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I had no idea. We at least know that Reza Shah period also uh, corresponded and uh, correlated with World War II. Um, and as we talked about, we had a massive influx of uh, Jewish refugees coming from Poland and Germany. Can you talk a little bit more about what was happening in World War II for Ashkenazi and Polish Jews and their interactions with Iranian Jews, for example? So World War II was a transformative moment for Iranian Jews. First of all, we see that, as you mentioned, there was this influx of migrants, of refugees rather, from Poland and Germany from earlier times. Also from Iraq, uh, Iraqi Jews that escaped after the Farhud. And we see the establishment of basically three different Jewish communities in Iran. The Iranian Jewish community, the Iraqi Jewish community, and the Ashkenazi Jewish community. And it was also the time when American Jewish aid organizations like the American Joint Jewish Distribution Committee started to work in Iran, first to help the refugees, but also to monitor kind of what was going on with the Iranian Jews. 
And then they, they found the JDC uh, surveyed the Iranian Jewish communities and found something pretty astonishing, that about 100,000 Jews lived in Iran again. We see that 10% of them were affluent, upper-class financial elites. 10% were among the emerging urban middle class. And 80% were impoverished, rural, really the underclasses of the Iranian society. And the same organization, and I'm, I'm jumping 30 years later, in 1977, uh, conducted another survey and found that 10% were still affluent financial elites, 10% were now impoverished, and 80% were middle class and upper middle class. Wow. So that's a huge shift in the, the social and material conditions for these people. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, there were many reasons that we can start counting and we can start talking about, first of all, you know, in 1948 with the establishment of Israel, about, let's say, about 20,000 uh, Iranian Jews emigrated to Israel. These were the neediest and the poorest of Iranian Jews. So the moment that they left, it already lifted so much of the burden that was on the Iranian Jewish establishment, right? Uh, because they needed to care for these people. And now they left and it bumped the status of Iranian Jews. But also, and this is something that happened during World War II and right after, Iranian Jews developed this very interesting approach to Zionism. Why? they felt like they witnessed what could happen to Jews in places that they cannot stay, like the Polish Jews, the German Jews. They developed this approach to Zionism, that Zionism is a great idea for people who cannot stay in their home, which is not the case of the Iranian Jews. So there's kind of this exceptionalism that comes with being Iranian Jew, right? Right, which is, I mean, it, we can think about it in similar ways to the way that American Jews think about Zionism. Right. It's great for other people. <laughs> <laughs> and we start to see different approaches to Zionism from the Second World War, maybe a little bit earlier, but it certainly sharpened during the Second World War and, and afterwards. As you mentioned, there's this huge social mobility that's happening in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What is this like in terms of institutions? What is this like in terms of participation in civil society, in terms of uh, access to education, healthcare? So with the uh, arrival of Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, he opened, I, I mean, not willingly, not, not intentionally, he opened the political sphere to any and every political party in Iran, which included the fascists on the far right and the Tudor party on the, on the far left. And the only party that Jews could openly affiliate with was the Tudor Party. So many Jews joined the Tudor Party. They supported the Tudor Party for many reasons. Um, they supported it because it was the fiercest political force the, against fascism. It was in, in the Tudor newspapers we see op-eds against uh, racism, anti-Semitism. We see that there was really active effort to recruit minorities, not just Jews, but minorities. And Jews felt that it's speaking to them. And also, this is something that happened in Jewish history. It's a very known moment that Jews realized that communism, with zero significance to religion and zero significance for... This is a vehicle for integration. And we see Jews that support the two, the, they join the two the activities, they publish newspapers that were identified and even affiliated with the Tudor Party. And we see prominent Jews in the top ranks of the, of the Tudor Party. But we have to remember that communism in the Middle East and Iran 
it's not the same thing as communism in Eastern Europe, for example. Right, yeah. And we have to remember that, like one of my interviewees told me that he joined the Tude at age 16 because this was the only place that they didn't call him Juhud, uh, which is a derogatory term for Jews. And he told me, I knew nothing about Marx or Marxism. But it was inclusive. Yeah. And at the age 17, he was put in Kassel prison. And he said, in Kassel prison, I learned everything about Marx and Marxism. <laughs> Anybody who studies Iranian intellectual history, if you want to learn your theory, you go to you prison. You can go to prison. Yeah. <laughs> Prisons became uh, the schools of political thought. This is something from last week. I gave a talk in Austin, Texas. An older Iranian Jewish couple came to me and told me, we joined the Tuda because this was the only space that we could hold hands <laughs> in public and not being judged for it. So, I mean, this is the spectrum of reasons why Jews participated in, uh, in the two. And also, again, and the most important thing, this was the only political party that they could openly support. After 1953, clearly there is a crackdown on political opposition. The two-day party slowly whittled away or going underground, mass arrests. What is it like to be a... Um Iranian Jew on the left in the 1960s. Um, as uh, historians, uh, we know what happens next, but in the next two decades, what's happening on the ground? So among the student uh, organizations in Iran today, even though it was illegal, it was maybe because it was illegal, it was very popular. And Iranian Jews, Iranian student organizations were still very active and very supportive in the underground operations. They operated and published pamphlets and, and newspapers and were in jail again. They went to political prisons because of their activism. I mean, but it's also the time that Iranian Jews made the jump from being in the social periphery to the front and center. We see that they become, ironically, because of their relations with Israel and because they chose to stay in Iran, they become this bridge between the Iranian society and Israel in so many layers. I mean, in the government uh, level, for sure, but also in the coalition between the Israeli Communist Party and the Israeli Socialist Parties and the Tude and Jebeheim Ali and other organizations. So the Iranian Jewish communities become very educated. Jewish schools become less Jewish because they are seen by non-Jewish Iranians as a vehicle for upward mobility. and uh, So you have Muslims, you have Christians joining. You have Muslims, joining. Christians, Baha'is, and it brings more greater visibility for Jewish schools and visibility for Jews in the Iranian sphere. And I know your talk at New York University, you also talked about hospitals, for example. Right, so this is part of the, of the story of the revolution. I mean, the hospital was established in the 1940s, in the early 1940s, and uh, the establisher actually died, Dr. Sapir, Uhala Sapir, died in 1942 after he contracted typhus from the Polish refugees. Oh, while he was while treating, he was the, treating wow. them. But this hospital existed in the Mahale, which was no longer a very Jewish neighborhood at the time, in the 1970s. But in 1978, two Jewish communists, Harun Yeshaya and Aziz Daneshrad, established a revolutionary Jewish group that was able to win the elections to the Jewish community leadership. So actually, the Jewish community was revolutionized <laughs> before, uh, before the revolutionary movement in Iran succeeded. And in prison, they met Ayatollah Said uh, Mahmoud Talekhani, and they were able to recruit the hospital management administration 
to operate two groups of rescue that would go to venues of protest and pick up wounded protesters. They did it because in the state hospitals, these protesters would be turned into the hand of the Savak. And the Jewish hospital, I mean, again, this is as part of the special relationship between the Shah and the Jewish community, the Jewish hospital was protected from this kind of... Uh, Security apparatus. Yeah. So during the 78, 70, early 79 demonstrations, we see that the Jewish hospital becomes one of the, the most important rescuers for the protesters. And so this is happening in 1978, 1979. Once the Islamic Republic is established... What are some of the anxieties of the Iranian Jewish community? What are some of the, um, I mean, in America, there's many Iranian Jews who ended up emigrating. What happens to the community with the establishment of the, of the Islamic Republic? So, again, we have to look at it in the broader context. This is not specifically a Jewish experience. After the revolution or during the revolution, many Iranians left Iran. Yes. Among them were many Jews, especially, by the way, it's, we can look at it in the same kind of social economic division. These were the upper classes that had benefited from relations with the Shah that fled and very concerned middle class that did not know which direction it's going to take. And unfortunately, most of the community decided to leave. It didn't happen overnight. It started with great hopes for the revolution. There was Aziz Daneshra, the same communist activist, was part of the Constitution Drafting Committee. And there was this public acknowledgement of the role of the Jewish hospital. So they felt that, like they, they are going to be part of this new nation-building project. And when they were drafting the, the Constitution, they went to meet with Bani Sadr, who was the first president. And they told him that they want to remove from the constitution the clause that gives every minority one representative in the majlis because they feel that now it's the time that minorities can be part of every political party and they don't need uh, this reserved seat. So they thought it was actually a regressive step. Yeah. And Bani Sadr told them, listen, if you're giving up that seat, you will not be represented at all. I mean, it's the sad truth, but truth nonetheless. And so they kept it. What traumatized the community was in May 1979 when Habib al-Kanyan was executed. He was one of the leaders of the community. He was a very known philanthropist. And he had very extensive relations with Israel and the Shah. And he was put on trial in the period of the mass trials and was executed the same day. And it really traumatized the community. And a group of uh, leaders of the community went to see Khomeini and Qom. And they wanted some kind of clarification, like what the message that they should get from this execution. And Khomeini then issued the fatwa that the Zionists are not Jews and the Jews of Iran are our brothers and sisters and should be treated as such. So it gave some more security for the Iranian Jews, but we still saw that many left. And this is, I always say that Iran is still the home for the, the biggest Jewish community in the Middle East outside Israel. And I mean, we, we tend to estimate the, the number of Jews in Iran at around 20,000, give or take. And I was told by a friend a few weeks ago, what you should say is not that there are, like with pride, that there are 20,000 Jews in Iran. You should say that the community should have been by now 200,000, but there are 20,000 now left. And I think at this point we're, we're getting past the scope of the book, but I want to talk about 
this post-revolutionary period. I mean, it's such a weird thing to say post-revolutionary period. That's 40 years now, right? <laughs> so, like, um, how about today, like 2018? What is the status of the, the Jewish community? I mean, clearly, you know, on the Internet, there's always going to be articles and photo essays and discussions online. But a lot of the Iranian Jewish community hasn't gone back, for example. What is the connection between the diaspora and the Iranian Jewish community, for example? So, it's not easy to be a Jew in Iran today but it's not easy to be an Iranian today. <laughs> yes, they are legally discriminated against, for sure, in some places. In others, they get more space for maneuvering. You know, there's something that we have to remember when we talk about Jews in Iran in 2018. Every morning that they wake up, they choose to stay in Iran. They are not locked behind an iron curtain, and it's not the not-without-my-daughter scene. They they are in Iran because they feel that they cannot live anywhere else. They have the option, I mean, by the U.S. law and the Israeli law, they can immigrate to the U.S. or Israel and get full status in moments, but they choose not to do it. Even more than that, many Iranian Jews have families in the U.S. and Israel and visit the U.S. and Israel and then go back to Iran. So it, it's not a situation that they have no choices. They fight for their rights. They have representation in the parliament. Uh, Siamak Moreseda is the Iranian Jewish representative in the Majlis now. The Rouhani administration was trying very much to work with the Jewish community. For example, a few years ago, they passed a law that Jewish students in public schools can not come to school on Saturdays, which was a major thing because most of the Jewish students don't go to Jewish schools. So it was actually seen as a very important step in favor of the Jewish community. Siamak Moresedek, the Jewish representative in the Majlis, joined uh, President Rouhani in his recent trips to the U.S. And there is this kind of attempt to reach out to the Iranian Jewish community, especially in the U.S. We can talk about gestures that some dismiss as empty gestures of the tweets of Shana Tova. But I think that it's not empty gestures. I mean, these are important steps. Even if it's made for publicity reasons, it's still important that the Iranian president and the Iranian foreign minister show that they want to have open conversation with Jews and Iranian Jews in the diaspora and in Iran. They unveiled a monument commemorating the fallen Jewish soldiers from the Iran-Iraq war. So, I mean, there are many steps taken to, to make sure that Iranian Jews feel part of Iran. Uh, Lior, as you published your book, you've been going on many book tours and interacting and discussing your book with uh, academics, but also members of the Jewish community here and also in Israel. Can you just talk about some of um, your experiences discussing your book or in the Q&As? I mean, this is a, something that may not come as a historical fact to a lot of people. So uh, do they challenge you on this? Uh, is there some sort of claims of apologism, for example? How does this look for you and um, how do you deal with this? Well, I get lots of mixed reactions, and understandably so. I mean, it's a very sensitive topic, especially to people who were there. When I published my article on the Jewish hospital during the revolution, I published it in Persian too, and I got this, I would say, very nasty email that this is me working for the Islamic Republic. But it's also, I get lots of responses that are extremely supportive, from Iranian Jews in the U.S., as I told you I, with this couple last week, that they told me that <laughs> I wrote their story, that they saw themselves in each chapter of my book. You know, I talk about this false dichotomy that 
we tend to characterize Iranian Jews and, and Jews in general about are you Zionist or not Zionist? And Iranian Jews were Zionist and non-Zionist and sometimes the both. same person was, <laughs> was both Zionist and non-Zionist and communist and Iranian nationalist and everything. And there was not a need to reconcile it. It was just part of who they are. In some issues, they were communists. In others, they were Jebhe Meli. In others, they were Zionists. I mean, it was very natural. So these are the same responses that I get. I mean, some of them are mad at me for portraying what they call a rosy picture of Iranian Jewish history, which is something that I tried very hard not to do. I, what I try to do is give a nuanced, balanced account of Iranian Jewish history, not just history of harassment and discrimination and persecution. Yeah, so the responses are from each and every corner of the possible <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> spectrum. Yeah, Lior, it's always a pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Uh, for our listeners, once again, this was uh, Lior Sternfeld, a professor of Jewish studies and history at Penn State University. His book is with Stanford University Press, Between Iran and Zion, Jewish Histories of 20th Century Iran. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much, Rustin. And for our listeners, as always, if you would like to continue the conversation, find us on Facebook or on Twitter. We'll continue the conversation there. Till next time. Mm-hmm.